if I'm in a city, why do you think that the person that's three miles down the road is suffering with low vacancy, not being able to compete? How, how, why would I think that I would be able to just be fine? Self-storage has changed a lot in how we view it in the city and what you're building than maybe to how it looked in the 80s or 90s. And how did that change? How has that evolved over that period of time? Welcome back, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. We're so excited to dive into today's episode. If you guys are looking to purchase your first storage facility, you just might be looking at the SBA loan approach. And one of the best and most efficient places to get your SBA from is going to be Live Oak Bank. These people know self-storage. They've been in the industry for a very long time. They're very knowledgeable. You don't have to educate them on the underwriting, on how you're, you're valuing self-storage, any of that. These guys are incredible at valuing self-storage. They know how to underwrite it, and they are a phenomenal solution for you and your financing needs in all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today, we have a podcast that has been a long time in the making. I'm really excited for this one, Connor, because Steve Marabito, who is a friend of mine, he sits on the store local board with me, um, and he is one of the people in the industry that I view are, you know, a juggernaut, right? Like, he's, he's one of the big boys. He knows not only what he's doing... But there's a few people in this industry that have the experience that he has and knowledge. So this is a real, real treat for us. So should we bring him in? Yeah, no, I'm super excited. And man, Steve, when AJ calls you a big boy, you know, you've made it, man. That's right. That's it. That's right. I, I only reserve that to my five-year-old. So I'm, I'm impressed. Well, seriously, man, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, to get started, why don't you just tell everybody um, your backstory, right? How did you get into this industry um, and then kind of where you're at today? I am probably one of the older guys in the industry, but um, I was I learned from the oldest guys in the industry and the first generation operators. So I got into the industry because back in 1985, I'm fresh out of school trying to learn the real estate industry, working for a development company in the Central Valley of California. And um, we were doing uh, real estate acquisitions and dispositions um, from Beverly Hills to you know, Sacramento and analyzing properties. And then all of a sudden, two pivotal things in my life happened. The first was there was something called Public storage and uh, uh, public storage wanted to buy a piece of property that we owned in Stockton, California. And our responsibility after the contract was uh, signed was to approve their uh, the design of the building, make sure it was architecturally compatible to the uh, design of the neighborhood. And um, so that was the first situation that took place. And then the second was the Tax Reform Act of 1986. So we'll talk about the PS story first. 
So public storage is in the office with my boss and we're going through the plans. We're looking at the plans and, and studying it. And all of a sudden, you know, my boss scratches his head. And he says, wow, this is a cash flow business, isn't it? And the, the gentleman in charge of acquisitions for public storage said, yes, it is. And um, it happened to be his very last property that he was he was uh, purchasing for public storage before he retired. So needless to say, um, as my boss always told me, he said, well, when people are ready to retire, they'll tell you everything. And sure enough, he spilled his guts and told us everything about the storage industry that even to this day, I use. And it was just great um, uh, intelligence and knowledge and input. And um, we sold the property to public storage. Meantime, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 took place. And what uh, happened there was uh, the federal government gave some very luxurious tax uh, deductions and incentives to build real estate during the eight, early 80s in order to get the economy kickstarted. Well, by 86, President Reagan and Congress came to a, an agreement to get rid of a lot of these uh, passive loss rules. And if you're in, in bottom line is self-storage, just like every other real estate um, needed to become a cash flow generator and not a cash loss or a, uh, a financial loss, especially on your income taxes. So company I was working for had, you know, half of Hollywood signed up taking all these um, um, very unprofitable uh, condominium projects throughout the country. And I think it was, you know, for every dollar they invested, they got four or five dollars in tax returns. So IRS changed the rules and no more $400 or $5, you know, to every dollar invested tax returns. So all that property really became um, uh, unusable. Well, well, the company got into a financial problem because they got stuck with, with um, property that had a value much less than what they had built it for. Um, so, so a combination of those things, the, my boss goes to the president of the company and says, hey, let's uh, build self-storage. It's a cash flow vehicle. And um, so I got into it, started studying it, and uh, I was on the road. I, I'd be working, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning till midnight every day, five days a week, six days a week, just trying to understand and study the industry. And um, we started to build self-storage properties and one after the other. And, and this is back in the late 80s. It became um, uh, a, a uh, phenomenal business model. And by 1990, I said, ah, I'm so burnt out building storage. I'm going to just go off on my own. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to do something. And um, I said, I'll, I'll uh, be a janitor if I have to. But a good friend of mine and an industry veteran uh, by the name of Tom Litton, who uh, passed away several years back, but he said, Steve, stay in the storage industry and get into management. I said, I don't know anything about management. He said, yes, you do. He said, your dad owned a grocery store. 
and you before I came along, um, you were doing all the uh, uh, termination of employments for the company. So you know how everything operates. So needless to say, 1990, I started a uh, management company. And, um, and then at the same time, an industry veteran by the name of Jerry Mooney, who was one of the first, if not first, self-storage consultants on the West Coast, called me and said, Steve, I'm retiring. Take my business over. And I said, well, how much? And he said, you know what? Just take my business over. I'm giving you the goodwill of the business. I know you know what you're doing. And from uh, 1990 forward, it started with the name of Mirabito Mooney and Associates. I kept his name um, and, and um, uh, developed, you know, uh, the the, the self-storage management practices he had designed, I implemented, um, and we did a lot of feasibility and viability studies. I, I uh, worked on that through the 90s. And then subsequently, um, you know, I got restless to get back into the real estate development. And by the mid-90s, I was building self-storage properties for myself. And um, I've got a partner, and we build pretty much you know, a property every year, um, ever since. And um, the interesting thing is about 98, 99, 1998, 99, looking at it, and it's like, you know, we can call ourselves John Storage or, uh, uh, you know, my first property that I built was called Industrial 880 Self Storage because we always would use the street address or, or something mm -hmm low down in the uh, uh, alphabet so that we'd have first position in the yellow pages. And um, I said, this industry has got to change and we have to have a brand. And um, so I started the brand name Storage Pro and probably one of the first independent operators um, that managed properties for third parties um, to, to, to create a brand name and uh, that was in the late 90s, and here we are 25 years later, still using the name and um, growing the name. And, you know, a lot of people, to give context, you're, I mean, not the birthplace, but basically, you know, where storage really erupted, right? Where, it, like, I view it as like the epicenter of storage worldwide, which was Southern California. So it was, I mean, the, a lot of the staples in the industry with the biggest owners, the large portfolios of private guys, public guys, they all came out of that region. And you were one of those people. And in, as far as most of the United States goes, you were very much ahead of a, the self-storage curve. It was a thing there when you know, it just wasn't in a lot of the United States. How did the self-storage industry really change from, you know, the 80s, especially from Southern California to the rest of the nation, um, till, you know, it not only just till now, but really till the 2000s, uh, particularly the financial crisis before that? Uh, how did that look and what was happening? Were people getting excited about it or was it, you know, how did every, uh, how did institutions, everyone view the asset and what were the struggles there as this industry progressed? 
ever since the 80s, banks looked at self-storage as a single purpose entity. And they said they had real heart palpitations wanting to lend on a self-storage property. Their feeling was, number one, they didn't know the business. Number two, we're pretty new, right, as an industry. Everybody is calling it mini warehouse, mini storage. Uh, and we kept on telling the banks and, and people in the cities, hey, it's self-storage. It's self-service storage. Uh, and But the biggest thing is the lending. There is no lending allowed. And that really kept the supply of product um, constricted. And it was only uh, larger operators like public storage that facilitated into partnerships um, and, and, and helped be able to finance their properties. Um, that was their, their uh, go-to operation and, and they succeeded extremely well as we all know. But for smaller companies and, you know, even a company like I work for uh, as a real estate development company, a pretty large operator, um, they had to pretty much um, arm twist every bank and say, hey, you want to do a residential project with us? We'll do it with you, but you got to do a storage facility with us, you know, alongside it. Oh, we don't know storage. Well, <laughs> either you want our residential project you know, you're going to do a storage project and um, a lot of arm twisting, but, but um, the banks would relent and, and grant us a loan. Um, and that really lasted for, um, you know, probably way into 2010, I bet. Um, oh. And some of the smaller banks who understood the business and had financed them previously had a little niche of a, a, um, a business and were able to, repeat loans to every operator and nobody ever uh there are very few foreclosures on storage um and all along we would get you know there'd be newspaper articles or magazine articles about this new up-and-coming industry called self-storage or mini storage and how it was going to completely radicalize the whole real estate industry and that it was going to become a real big uh, sector in the real estate community and kept on reading them. You know, it's interesting. One, one article, um, I, I was, I was interviewed for the, um, San Francisco Chronicle in the mid nineties, a front page article about, you know, up and coming business called self storage. So people were interested. They knew about it, but they, they knew it was happening but nobody really saw that it was really happening and changing um, as, as we were uh, living through it. You know, it's so interesting because the barriers of entry that you guys faced were huge, but not just on the institutional side, everything else. Um, what was it on the financing side? What was it like working with the city when you're trying to build a storage facility, which I'm sure a lot of those cities, I mean, they probably didn't really understand it, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, what was that like? Because you built a lot. How was it working with the cities and the counties um, on the development process back then? 
Yeah, very interesting question and great question. Uh, believe it or not, cities were great to work with. They welcomed storage because we were a low traffic generator. And mm. at that time, especially in California, they were recognizing, hey, we got traffic problems that are getting out of control. And self-storage was a great land use because it slowed, you know, limited amount of trips uh, per day. And storage is one of the lowest traffic generating land uses um, out there. Uh, the other thing cities recognized, it was a, a great transitional buffer between commercial and residential neighborhoods. Um, unfortunately, over the past few years or last decade, cities have um, uh, said, well, this is just not what we want in our backyard or in, as a, you know, at the front door of our community. We want something higher and better. Um, but, but the self-storage industry has adjusted and we've, we've improved the look of the facilities that they're, they're beautiful pieces of real estate and uh, that, that every owner um, and every community would be totally proud to, to have at their front door. Absolutely. And that brings me to, why don't you uh, talk about your portfolio today? Where is it? What's it consist of? Um, and uh, also the makeup of time frame of the assets. Like how many are new? How many have you held on for? How long? Because I'd love to dive in from that and talk about performance of the assets over over these times and what you've seen. Sure. Uh, interestingly, we're not merchant builders. Uh, my partner and I uh, made a commitment back in the mid 90s that we would never sell anything. And since 1995, we've uh, retained ownership of every property that we have built. And uh, our portfolio has consisted of only new development projects. Um, we do not acquire existing properties. Our business plan is just to build. I love building. I love um, you know, going through the entitlement process. And um, uh, as a result, we've built up a pretty good portfolio of, um, of properties here in Northern California. Yeah, that's you know, it, it's amazing, first of all, that you guys actually stuck with it, that I'm sure you have gotten offers over that time that are <laughs> mind boggling compared to where you started and valuations to hold strong to that definitely benefited you over this period. Uh, especially when you see, you know, cap rates dropping from uh, compressing from, you know, 12% to 10%, you know, in you know, down to four and five percent today. Uh, yeah. it, it's um, it's completely revolutionized the the uh, economics of of self storage. And how about the like overall look and feel? Like self storage has changed a lot in how we view it in the city and what you're building today. I'm I'm, uh, I'm assuming right is very different when you're building in California than maybe to how it looked in the 80s or 90s, what was that process look? Because I, I know your properties. I, I have seen them and you, they're gorgeous. You you do a very, very good job. You're obviously one of the most uh, experienced people out there in this. And how did that change? Was that a driven 
Like, did you see a drive in the customers wanting change? Was there always talk of drive up versus climate controlled? And was it cities that were saying we want it to change how it looks? Um, how has that evolved over that period of time? Yeah. Uh, well, here in Northern California, land is um, very short in supply. As a result, um, as much as I love building single story properties throughout the 90s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, the cost of land underneath the dirt underneath each one of these buildings is, is just too expensive. So we ultimately had to go up vertically. Um, and most of the properties are that are being built today were at three stories and some at four stories um, to accommodate them. I think two things. So it's economics. And then at the same time, the city did not want to see chain link fences and, you know, ugly orange doors. Um, you know, so they expected something better. Uh, so so it, 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 it was a good marriage between economics and, and city expectations. And we were able to deliver and perform. And um, to, to the surprise and chagrin of not only the neighbors, but the communities, what we said we would build, we built. And um, we uh, have built a great reputation of being not only a great neighbor, but a great member of the community as a result of that. I love that. So as you guys know, we like to partner with people who have been in the self-storage industry for a very long time and people who are not going anywhere, who are going to stay in the self-storage industry. One of those people is Janice International. These guys have been in the self-storage world for a very long time. They're an incredible company with amazing products to help build, to help improve and to help drive value of your self-storage facility. They've got rehabilitation programs like their R3 program. They have a number of technology solutions to help you increase operations and value of your self-storage facility. Be sure to check out the all things self-storage at Janus International. Link is in the show notes. When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. I'm going to ask a question that I don't think I want to know the answer to, but what were you building at a price per square foot back in the 90s? Like, how much did it cost you to put something out of the ground? Now, given this is in Northern California, all right, and well, because you, you're basically <laughs> all over California, but... How much did it cost you in the 90s to build one of these things? <laughs> well, let me back up. Let's go to the 80s. And um, we started out at $14 a foot for a masonry building. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> Whereas today we're, what, 100, 120? Um, yeah. You know, all in. So, yeah, it's we've um, we've seen a little bit of inflation and um, yeah. on the cost of it. Plus we're building, you know, the product today, you know, I, I think back in the eighties, nineties, um, it, we would have to go in, get a city building permit and 
what was built was probably just, you know, one step above a, um, you know, the quality construction just was not there. Whereas today we're building modern office buildings, you know, the, yes. the, 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 the infrastructure and, um, you know, the, the security and the safety systems, plus the, um, uh, the design of the building, the engineering of it is all built for, um, for, um, you know, a, a, a very sophisticated long-term use. And we're not building, you can't afford to build anything um, that's not going to be there for, for years and, and withstand all the elements. I'm, I'm going to just change the subject for a minute because, yeah. you know, in running parallel with this is um, right from the beginning, I always observe storage just like motels in the hotel industry. And um, I've heard it occasionally discussed, but um, I truly believe that we uh, are very, very um, uh, genetically connected to the hotel industry. We do everything the store, you know, the storage do, does everything on a 30, you know, 30 day basis on a month to month basis. Hotels do things on a you know, daily basis, but we have so many different similarities um, that that it's shocking. And in some areas, I think we do a better job than the hotel industry. And then other areas, the hotel industry is showing me. I'm li I listen to some you know, podcasts and, and, and uh, professors talking and experts in the hotel industry talking. And I'm hearing great ideas that they're coming up with for the hotel industry that we need to be adapting. And the, the um, time frame, uh, we, we, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we were probably a 30, 40 year you know, age difference in, in terms of development and technology compared to the hotels. Today, I think we are, you know, side by side in terms of how we've evolved technologically as well as the, the design of the properties. I put up one of my storage pro properties to a hotel, you know, any of these budget hotels. I think we built a much better product. It looks nicer. It's very, very attractive. Um, and, and it really, you know, some of these properties, you know, are jaw dropping. And, and one of the greatest things I love hearing is, you know, from the planning department saying, Hey, Steve, I never expected to see a storage property that looks like this. Well, that's what we had to do. You know, the hotel industry has done the same thing, right? But if you look at the hotels, um, you know, back in the fifties and sixties, they were single story, um, you know, Drive up. You drive right up to their room. No fence around it, but the, there wasn't a fence. Maybe a swimming pool on the front. Yeah. <laughs> Interstates came by. You know, those babies have uh, gone sideways, but um, uh, they're still there. But they've um, they're, they've seen their uh, best of their economic uh, days. Uh, but it's the same thing with storage. And I tell um, you, know, Storage Pro is is one of the leading um, independent third-party management companies in the nation. Um, we manage over 
well over 100 properties and I'm growing. Uh, and I tell clients and I, and I, I, I beg with them and say, guys and ladies, you know, we're no different than the hotel industry or even Walmart versus Kmart. If you build a good product, people will come. If you don't reinvest in your product, people will leave. Now, there's a reason why there are Walmarts that have been replaced with super Walmarts. And in the meantime, the Kmarts have gone, you know, bye-bye. So no more blue light specials at Kmarts because they never kept up with the competition and reinvented themselves. And, and, and we have to do that in the self-storage industry as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's such an important aspect to recognize uh, these cross-industry touch points and these parallels and comparisons that you can make and, and recognizing what the markets are demanding and expecting and therefore those customers and consumers and what they're demanding and expecting as well. So we're making those parallels with you know the hospitality, hotel industry, and even within our own industry, what are we seeing these other, whether they're institutional grade facilities, portfolios, whatever operators, um, recognizing those shifts that need to happen. And like you said, maintaining those over time and growing and improving where uh, you, you know your your portfolio your portfolio and the assets are either improving or they're dying. If you're not growing, you're dying. One hundred percent. You want to be a green tomato, not a red tomato. Yes. There you go. We you know it's we we were literally having this conversation, Steve, this morning where we were we were discussing with another operator and we were talking about we're like self storage is like the hotel business, and we're trying to explain to them like it has more similarities to the hotel business because they're like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, it's like industrial. We're like, no, it's not. It is not like industrial from the standpoint. You have a triple net lease. You have somebody that rents it out. It's a big space. They, they are operating in and out of it. Right. We go it, in a lot of cases, we can see how people may think that, but it's way more closely related to the hotel industry. And mm-hmm. I remember when we, We'd been in self-storage for a while. We were going to get into it in a much bigger way. And uh, it was when we started talking with others and it was when um, uh, Store Local was coming about. And it was from you and other operators that we were having those discussions with that just seemed to understand this. Like the role of technology in this industry, the role of branding, the role of leveraging um, buying capabilities. And I, and I remember that there were a handful of operators, principally the ones that were talking with us and starting up store local. And it was like, if we don't act right, we're going to go the way of the hotel industry and it's going to be, um, all singular brands. It's going to be, you know, a lot like that. And when did people really start thinking? Cause at the time, and this was, you know, we're talking after 08. So this was 010, maybe 12 when Store Local was getting started. And we we're um, all the founding members were getting started and discussing it. But that at that time, that was still that was rare. Like it was you were pitch. We were pitching like a co-op to members is, oh, well, you can get pricing, purchasing power. And that's how you sold them, where it was really, though, the founding members things were talking about this change saying we don't want to become like the hotel industry. We don't want to be consolidated all under a few brands. And this is important. When did you hear people start 
realizing self-storage is not what it was and we have to think about it differently. And we have to look towards these other asset classes. Like, when did you start thinking about that and, and seeing that? Because even at the time when the founding members were discussing that, that was still rare in the storage industry to be thinking like that. Um, when did you start? When did you start to see the change? I think Lance Watkins, who founded Store Local, um, was probably the only independent operator that saw it. And I will, um, uh, hats off to Lance because of uh, his brilliance and, and um, seeing what was happening in the industry. Now, I'll never forget the day he came to me and said, Steve, he says, uh, we're looking at, you know, putting together this co-op. I said, Lance, I'm in. He said, well, <laughs> I didn't have to sell you. How come? I said, Lance, back in 1970, my dad owned a grocery store. They owned uh, three or four different grocery stores. And they were small, five, 6,000 square foot operations, which is a good size operation back in the 70s. And they were independent. They remained independent. But all of a sudden, we had inflation and cost of goods started going up. And the independent operators that controlled the market, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s, now all of a sudden we're losing control of the market. They lack, you know, coordination. They lack the computerization and the technology. They lack the distribution processes. And as a result, larger operators came in that were publicly owned and took over and and pretty much gobbled up the entire market share on the Eastern seaboard and the independent guys that were brilliant and know how to run a grocery store excellently are now all out of business. So I saw that as a kid and I knew my dad, you know, saw it and said, gosh, we need a co-op. We need somebody, you know, to work to get, we all need to be working together, not, you know, separately. Um, but he had such challenges in getting, let's say, 10 or 15 different independent operators to work together. And these guys weren't competing head on. They were, you know, probably in a 50 mile radius of each other. So they were unwilling to look and see what was happening in the industry. And they were unwilling to work together. And I saw that the same thing in the storage industry. Um, you know, for years, I would pitch independent owners and say, hey, guys, you want to say, you know, make a couple thousand dollars a month? And they're like, yeah, how do you do that? I said, how about if I put my advertisement for my storage facility or one that I manage along with yours in the front page of the Yellow Page book? And they're like, oh, no, no way. I said, you, but you're paying $36,000, $48,000 a year for advertising, and this is in the 90s, okay? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll split the cost. We're not going to compete with each other because you're three, four, five miles away from my property, mm -hmm. and they refuse to do it. I'll remember one operator said to me, he said, well, who's going to get the top side and who's going to get the bottom? I said, I don't care. You take whatever you want, but, you know, we just need a presence, and we're going to save ourselves, you know, 
advertising costs in half. Uh, so nobody saw that happening in our industry, um, and it's very similar to what 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 I experienced in the grocery business. So when Lance came and said, "Hey, let's look at putting something together," I was like, "I'm here for you. I'm I'm ready to join." Yeah, you know, that's incredible. Yeah, and it's so similar to our story where it was our experience in another industry just like yours that was being consolidated amongst major operators and everything. Um, and it was, we were a part of that and they started to lose their ability to really compete. So when Lance came to us, like you, seems like a virus, isn't he? He just spreads. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it gets around. It gets around. So uh, when he came to us as well, we were just like, same thing. We're like, Oh, we're in. He's like, Wait, what do I have to say? We're like, we, we've been through this in other industries. Like, we know, um, we get it. And that's a, I mean, hence the reason why, you know, we have this podcast. Hence the reason why we we do these things. We're trying to ensure the industry. And and I often tell people, they're like, AJ, you literally get on every week and tell everybody your secrets. And they're like, why are you telling everyone what you do in the industry and how you do it? And I'm like, a rising tide lifts all ships. If you are profitable, I'm profitable. If I'm in a city, why do you think that the person that's three miles down the road is suffering with low vacancy, not being able to compete? How, how, why would I think that I would be able to just be fine? Like that, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, if I want to remain independent and others want to remain independent, we need to be able to compete. And there's storage facilities everywhere, all over the United States. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss out on something, right? But we can ensure that. And I just think that's a really, really important piece. Mm-hmm. It is. And and just kudos, kudos to you guys for recognizing the need for uh, a co-op like Store Local and, and consolidating those resources and owners and operators. Um, I know, AJ, you'd mentioned that, you know, it's not not very common in the storage industry, but I would honestly, I would say it's even, even back then or even today, whether it was 2010 or now, I still feel like that's thinking outside the box. I mean, you don't hear of or see of, or at least I don't, uh, of of a lot of that taking place or, or occurring. And when you're talking about these aspects of consolidation or having, um, things like, you know, Lance is always talking about online, you know, market share and what the, and real estate and what that looks like. And, and those major resources that, I mean, so many people aren't even considering, I mean, just hats off to you guys for recognizing the need and starting to build this, you know, a decade ago. You know, with that and all these changes, and obviously the last 10 years has been crazy. What do you see today in the storage industry? What worries you? What opportunities do you see coming over the next, you know, five years and 10 years? You know, one one current topic, which I found very interesting, is the challenges that Blackstone has with their private REIT. Um, they're doing so well that um, investors are running, wanting to cash out. So they've had to put limits on, on the um, uh, exiting. I'm going to guess there's a lot of storage product in that portfolio. And you know, on an immediate basis, I have a feeling there may be opportunities coming down the pipe because our industry has done so well that um, operators like BlackRock w- are going to have to cash out. They're not here for the long haul. They're not going to be, you know, we're a small enough industry. 
I truly believe there's going to be opportunities as a result of that. The second uh, big thing is, and I started this in 2010, recognizing I can't manage my properties, the ones I own, if I'm only managing my properties and maybe a few others as a management company. I was doing a disservice to myself, to my partner, and uh, to my clients. And I realized, even though I was managing 20 properties back then, I said, I have to grow this company. It's either grow or get out of the business and um, pass it on to another third-party operator. So we elected to grow, and um, I, I poured my uh, soul into growing the company. And we went from about 20 back in, in uh, you know, about 2010 to now we're well north of 100 properties and growing. Uh, and so the, uh, the big takeaway from there is as we add another property, we're not competing. We've got properties side by side with each other. I may own a property or I may have two clients that own, you know, properties side by side. But the systems, the processes, the technologies that a larger operator like myself can deliver are so much further superior and, and so much more valuable for the independents. So the story is you're an independent operator. You really do need a third party operator to manage for you. You will make a lot more money with a third party operator. I've been through every problem in the book that, you know, that um, uh, nobody, half the industry doesn't even know. So we deliver, a, you know, the, because of the technology and the changes in the, in the industry, um, to, to remain relevant and be profitable, you have to have a third party uh, managing your property. And then uh, the third big one is technology. When I got into the industry, we, I would beg, let's say, for example, a um, lean letters. I said, you know, there's a company out there called More Business Solutions or More Business Systems, and they had a pre-formatted lean um, certified letter that um, you could print off your dot matrix printer. But I could not pay a technology company, a software management company, um, enough money for them to redesign their format of their lean letters so that we could eliminate this mundane process that the managers had to do on the first of the month, you know, every month. And it would burn them out and there are always inaccuracies with it. Well, today, the industry is changing, technology is changing, and we have the opportunity out there with, with, since technology is so much cheaper to adapt, we have the opportunity to really put that into our, our facilities and um, improve our operations. And one of the examples is, you know, since COVID, uh, listening to uh, a Cornell University Hotel School um, presentation, they had some speakers on what, what's the next technology that's going to hit the hotel front. And uh, one of the presenters said, hey, I started this company. We can detect air quality. And eventually, we're going to be in every room, in every hallway of a hotel. 
I'm like, why aren't we doing that in the storage industry? We need technology to just say, yes, we can slap that in there and put that into every you know hallway in a storage unit very inexpensively, but we need the technology you know, to adapt to it. So I, I think you know, in the next couple of years, we're going to see some real big revolutions um, in in technology that serves our industry, and it's going to catapult us to a a level that we've never seen before. I totally agree. Speaking of technology, what do you view as these third? Um, you know, like a, a lot of people talk about like um, these outside companies, like what are they like next door or these storage tech platforms that are the Uber of storage where they're, you know, delivery remote. Um, they're all of those different kind of things, which are trying to, uh, take a piece of the storage pie. And I remember, you know, five years ago, there was a lot of hype where I was like, Oh, storage is going to die because of these new entry technologies that people are using. There was some, a company out of Utah that, is uh, Airbnb of storage where they allow people to rent out the garage. And what is your opinions or thoughts on these these other ones that we've seen for a while? We, I mean, we've seen the uh, the first big one was the delivery one, right? And that was well over 10 years ago. Um, and that everybody said 10, 15 years ago, this is going to take over storage, right? And it, storage will be gone and never did. Um, what do you view about these new uh, uh, companies that are popping up and their effect on storage? Uh, do you see like risks or merit in them? Where do you think they do good? Where do you think they do bad? Well, I think that's where we need technology. And I think it's right around the corner for our industry. Uh, I believe the valet storage, I think that's what you're talking yes, about. Um, yeah. Uh, I ever since I saw it happen, I said, oh, my gosh, this is a existential threat to our industry. And I've spoken to appraisers, investors, developers, and they're like, yeah, yeah, but man, there's no problem with it. We're not seeing any impact. I would disagree. Our analytics show that uh they're probably picking off a good supply of our small unit customers. And it, as we all know, the small units are the highest rent per square foot in the uh, uh, business. So um, in some of these urban areas, they have an impact. Using the Bay Area, for example, self-storage, there's been very few self-storage facilities that have been able to successfully get developed because of land use regulations. So there's a lot of barriers to entry here in the Bay Area. Um, and because of that difficulty, plus we got generation X and Zs that quite frankly, I admire because they, with all due respect, not necessarily the most um, energetic people out there that want to do physical labor work. Um, and as a result, they're not going to want to go to a storage unit, you know, and spend their Saturday afternoon when they could be watching a college football game or, or going surfing, 
they're not going to want to go to a Saturday afternoon, go to a storage unit to put all this stuff in. So I truly believe our industry has got to adapt and take that technology and apply it in self-storage. We're going to have to be a hybrid between pure self-service storage and a valet product that we will pick up and we will deliver a product to you. May not be, um, you know, um, we may not have the big fleets, but I've driven by some of these valet storage warehouses and I wrote an article on this a couple of years back. Um, we are rich in real estate in the self-storage industry and limited in technology. The valet guys are very rich in technology, but limited in real estate, but they can scale their real estate needs. You go out to a place like in Tracy, California, and I've seen and witnessed, um, you know, one of the valet storage operators that serves the entire Bay Area grow from a very small storefront um, warehouse operation into, um, at last count, I, I believe they have well north of 20 to 30, the equivalent space for 20 to 30 self-storage facilities um that they, they've uh, built out in in their warehouse so it is a existential threat um it may not be affecting most people right now but i guarantee you over the next five years it's going to change our industry i uh you know i agree and really you're at the heart of that the valet storage really took hold in the bay area like that was the area at first, we have a valet storage here, which is, I don't even know if they even do it anymore. It, you know, where, and people were like, oh yeah, it didn't really do anything. And I'm like, well, it, it didn't do anything, but that's just because it's so early. And uh, I'm like, you, you know, you got to look at this in areas where uh, I believe valet is doing well, which like the Bay Area, because it's, it's an economic thing, right? And that's what people don't understand about storage. Like you mentioned, like storage started wherever it was, Texas or whatnot, but it really took hold in California, particularly Southern California, but it spread all across California, as you saw. Um, and it the reason why was it was an economic need out of California. And it had to do with that limited space. It had to do with the economics of higher cost of real estate, right? And regulations on real estate that drove it. And so when I look at things like what's happening with valet storage in the Bay Area, people dismiss it. But I go, the economics that drove storage in first in California spread across the nation. Why do you think it wouldn't do the same? Right. And just because in your area, it may be 15, 20 years out. Right. Doesn't mean it's not coming because you live in a rural area or whatnot. But for most metropolitan areas like New York, like Miami, right? Things like that. That's where it always goes first. But technology like real estate has this thing where once they hit capacity, then they can deliver that at a cheaper cost. And then they can go into other markets because you have customer adaptation that, like you said, then they want it. So it doesn't need to be an economic driver at first in small areas. It won't come because of the economic, but because it's an economic driver, they can test solidify the business model, get customer adaptation. And from there, they can drive into markets where it's not an economic driver, but then it becomes a customer driver. Mm -hmm. Hence the reason why we have self-storage in rural markets, 
where you're like, why would you use self-storage in rural markets? It doesn't seem to make sense, but it's customer at customer adaptation. And that's where I think the danger is. And people that dismiss it, I think you are exactly right, are short-sighted. And because you don't feel the impact of a business model now does not mean that it will not be adapted way quicker than you see in the future. Because once the economic adaptation weans and the customer adaptation accelerates, it can be adapted everywhere. And you're really at the heart of this. So I value that opinion. And I think more people should. And I think that it's uh, very much ignored in the self-storage space. Um, but somebody like you that is seeing it and seeing what can happen and what it'll do, um, it is a valid thing and a concern. And the answer is exactly what Steve just said, everybody. Adaptation for us to use the same business model. Because if customers adapt it, we adapt it. It doesn't matter if you don't want it. If the customers do, we do. So Steve, like he's saying, and, and I've had conversations with Steve about this, and me, Steve, and Lance had a lengthy conversation about a year ago about how we could utilize technology and open APIs to overlay our assets to adapt more of the valet model, and it's a plug and play. Because we, like, like you just said, we have a real estate advantage. They have a tech advantage. So if we had the tech, we could overlay that on our real estate and then charge the customers for it. Now, it's not an existential threat, but an added value option that we can utilize. And so I think you're approaching that exactly correct and ahead of the curve. And everybody needs to, and everybody should listen to that, is don't ignore it. Don't act like it's not coming. Instead, how do we look at our assets and how do we look at that technology to adapt it? Um, I think, Steve, that conversation that and what you're saying right there will be very, very vital here in five years. And people that were ignoring it will be now talking about it and what you're experiencing there. I really do believe that. And I think it's really, really important. So, yeah. Uh, success breeds complacency. Yes, it does. And storage has been too successful for too long and way, way too successful, like doing nothing and being outrageously successful. Um, and I think that's changing. But we're the only industry that has not been in disrupted in their entire economy. Uh, and it's not, it should not be a threat. Okay. We have to be conscious of and test and retest and try out new things. And we cannot remain complacent. And, and, and unfortunately there's so many people out there, um, you know, that, that, feel that we're a very static industry. We're not. We have to be dynamic. We have to be looking at making mistakes. That's okay to make a mistake, but okay. learn from it and grow from it. And uh, as you said, yeah, maybe the first users of LA Storage found it uneconomical. They made mistakes. We can learn from their mistakes and apply those same product services much better than a valet operator will ever be able to apply them because the biggest thing we've got real estate right in the central right in the market yes. and we can deliver much quicker or the customer can come get their stuff much quicker they'll be safer because it's all right within contained inside their own personal unit that is secured 
Um, so, so it's, it's. And cost efficient. You can deliver it at a much lower cost. Much more, much more. Yes. I, I just think that's amazing. Well, Steve, we, we don't need to take any more of your, your time, but we are very appreciative of your, uh, your insight. There are so few people that have this kind of insight in the self-storage space today. Um, where can anybody go learn about your company, what you guys do? Um, where would you direct people to go that's maybe listening? Sure. Um, we are Storage Pro Management, and uh, you can find us on the website at storagepro.com uh, and our third-party management services, uh, storagepromanagement.com. Wonderful. Perfect. We'll put and those in the show notes. Yes. Thank you, Connor. And thank you, AJ. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully we can do it again. Thank you again for your, your, your time, Steve. And uh, I'll talk to you soon.